turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be back in the Gospel of John this morning. I'm excited to share with you a message this morning entitled, In His Hands, In His Hands. We've been looking at, in the Gospel of John, we looked at the idea of Jesus being the good shepherd, and we talked quite a bit about us being sheep and what it means to be in his care. And that theme continues this morning in the section we're in, beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 10. And one of the things that it highlights for us is this idea that in the hands of the shepherd, we have the greatest kind of security, the greatest kind of protection. Now, we as Americans highly value our protection and our security, don't we? We can think of it in terms of uh, protection, the time, of, the time we put in, the, the money we spend for security systems and camera systems and ring doorbell systems on our homes and things like that, or taking self-defense classes or all these other ways that we seek to protect ourselves and we want to prevent problems or prevent bad things from happening. Another way we can think about it is in terms of when something bad does happen, we want to prepare for that so that we can minimize the damage to ourselves or to our things. So we have insurance companies and we have insurance policies. And I was thinking about this, and I just want you to listen as I rattle off a list of the types of insurance policies that most of us have, or at least some of these we have. Home insurance, life insurance, auto insurance, health insurance, disability insurance, short-term and long-term, rental cars, trips we take, Tickets we might buy to a concert or an event, we can get insurance for those in case we're not able to make it. Then you think of warranties, you can get a warranty on your car, on a piece of furniture, on a blender. (laughs) Warranties. And then think of this, the array, the vast array of insurance companies. State Farm, Allstate, Farmers, Progressive, Geico, Nationwide, Amica, Safeco, Did I miss any? Any others you can think of? What is it? USAA. There's a variety, but we could... Oh, Brian, who do you work? MetLife, of course. Brian in the back's like, what's what's the deal? MetLife, how could I forget? Our beloved worship pastor's employer. Lots and lots of insurance companies and insurance policies. And these things say to us basically two things. One, we live in a dangerous, risky, hazardous world. Two, we want to protect ourselves, our people, and our stuff. It's important to all of us. And it's reasonable that that's the case because we're in touch with reality. We know the world we live in, so it makes sense. But if we're honest, we have to admit that it also speaks to us of this insecurity and this inevitability of loss. The inevitability that at some point we will lose everything. So in the meantime, we want to keep as much as we can and protect as much as we can to include our own bodies. We are obsessed with security, protection, insurance, assurance. We're obsessed. As we make our way back to the Gospel of John this morning, God is highlighting for us the most important kind of protection the protection that we need the most, the protection of our souls, the protection that we have because of Jesus, the protection we have in his hands. And there is no better protection. And we're going to explore this morning what that means and what that, not just what that means in some conceptual way, but what that means to us personally. 
what that provides for us personally. Now I want to remind you by reading the first three verses here that Jesus was in this pressure cooker environment. Again, it's been a little while, so let me remind you, John, as he records Jesus' life and ministry, he often highlights the interaction of Jesus with the religious Jews and their leaders, the Pharisees. And there's a lot of controversy swirling. There's a lot of disagreement and argument going on as they're resisting and opposing Jesus, and he continues to speak truth. And so that's what's happening. That's why in verses 19 through 21 it says, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. That is the words regarding him being the good shepherd. It says, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? He's crazy. Don't give him any more time or attention. Verse 21, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? We saw in John chapter 9, Jesus healing the blind man. They're saying, uh, he's, obviously there's something to this guy. So they're disagreeing and arguing it's this pressure cooker this polarized environment and that is the environment in which jesus proclaims himself as the good shepherd and in which this morning he's going to highlight this great protection and security we enjoy in his hands and so we're going to notice two things okay first of all the kind of protection they wanted and the kind of protection we often crave humanly naturally And then secondly, we're going to look at the kind of protection he provides. The best kind of protection. So first, the kind of protection they wanted. Look in verses 22 through 24. He gives us a really important detail about the setting here. It says, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Stop there. It mentions the feast of dedication. Now, you may or may not know this, but the Feast of Dedication was Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And we are coming up the holiday season, and of course we think of Christmas. But for Jewish people, there is Hanukkah. Now, if I were to put you on the spot and say, Pop quiz, tell me everything you know about Hanukkah, I would guess you might not know that much. You probably know more about insurance companies than Hanukkah. I remember growing up, I had a friend in school whose father was Jewish and his mother was Irish. So he had both Hanukkah and Christmas. I remember being quite jealous of him because of all the days of presents. And now that I'm a parent, I feel bad for his parents because of all the days of presents. Hanukkah, okay? Eight days, eight nights. Think of the menorah, maybe images like that come to mind. But what is the significance of it? Well, it all goes back to this feast of dedication. It it predates Jesus himself. I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's going to help us appreciate what the people there were craving and the significance and the substance of what Jesus was offering them by contrast, okay? So Hanukkah, this is what it's about. In the 2nd century B.C., it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, okay? In the 2nd century B.C., The Jews who have had an embattled history, have they not, leading up to this very day, and we know what's happening as we are here this morning, we know what's happening in that part of the world, in Israel with Hamas. They've had an embattled history, a great deal of opposition, threats all around them, all the time. I mean, this is common to their experience, isn't it? This is what their life has been like, or their history as a nation has been like. Well, in the second century B.C., 
They were under the domination of the Syrians. And a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes decided that he would seize the temple. He would seize the temple and he would fill it with the icons and the idols of their religion. They even offered sacrifices of pigs, which was an absolute abomination to the Jewish people and to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. So they were controlling the temple and controlling and oppressing the Jewish people. That was the environment. And in that setting, as the Jews were increasingly frustrated, increasingly feeling this need for liberation, this need for some kind of rescue, for someone to deliver them from this abomination, in that setting, a family rose up known as the Maccabees, led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. The name Maccabeus means the hammer. Judas the hammer. Now when you're in a situation like this, you want someone called the hammer to help you. And that's exactly what happened. The Maccabees rose up and they fought off the Syrians and cleared out the temple and rededicated the temple to their God, to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. They rededicated their temple. It was theirs again. And as the story goes, though they had only a little bit of oil, they lit the golden candlestick there, and for eight days and eight nights, that oil kept burning. The light did not go out. That's why some call it the Festival of Lights. Eight days, eight nights. And to this day, Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah with the giving of gifts and with lights for eight days and eight nights. That is what Hanukkah is all about. That is the context of Jesus being with the religious Jews at this time. That's the context in which he is proclaiming himself to be the good shepherd, their leader, their provider and protector. And here's what they say to him in verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. We can't handle this anymore. Just out with it already. If you're the Messiah, just tell us. Think of what they were reflecting on in this holiday celebration. That liberation when they felt weak and powerless, but the Maccabees rose up and became their heroes, their conquerors. Well, they wanted a better hero. They wanted the ultimate hero. They wanted their Messiah to come and give them final victory. They were sick of the ups and downs, the historical twists and turns, and all the difficulty and hardship they had endured from their very inception. They were tired of it, and they wanted leadership that would put off the enemies. They knew of the hammer and they wanted like the divine hammer to come and crush their enemies and to clear their holy place and to give them a position of prominence and power to rule and reign in the world. That's what they wanted. That's what they craved. And that is, is it not common to mankind? It's what we all want. We all want security. We all want protection. We all want that kind of freedom. We want to either get it for ourselves or we want to enlist someone else to get it for us because we feel in this world so insecure, so vulnerable, don't we? So vulnerable. Relationally vulnerable. I have friends today. Might not tomorrow. Financially vulnerable. There's money in my bank account today. Might not be tomorrow. Physically insecure, physically vulnerable, 
My body feels okay today? Well, sort of. <laughs> Might not tomorrow. Like, inevitably will not at some point feel okay. So we live with that profound sense of insecurity and vulnerability, and we long for security and strength and protection. We need help, and, and they were wanting it, and we are wanting it. We need help. So what kind of protection does he give? Well, notice verse 25. It says, Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. So they're questioning him about, well, are you the Messiah or not? At other places they say, well, prove to us that you are. Do more good works for us. Do Perform more miracles for us. And he's saying here, look, I... I've already told you, you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. The works were showing off his power. His words were speaking truth, penetrating truth right to the heart, right to the soul, applicable to everyone. Penetrating words of truth. He was speaking to them. So he says, look, I've already done enough. All this is testifying of me, but you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. This goes back to prophecies in the Old Testament that say the people are blind and deaf. They can't see, they can't hear. In their arrogance, in their pride, they just think they know better. They think they have their religious uh, understanding and their religious practices, or they think they have their heritage and they're good. They know what they're doing. They, They don't feel comfortable in the company of The woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery, or the man born blind who is considered a worse sinner than others. They don't feel at home in that company. They feel at home with the pristine, polished, religious people and just not convinced. He says, I've done enough, and you don't don't believe. But in contrast, he says, My sheep hear my voice. And so we're going to talk for the remainder of the message here about the kind of protection he's offering. First of all, the protection of hearing his voice. Protection of hearing his voice. Now, I remember one day during summer vacation, I was probably nine or ten years old. And as as people that age back then used to do, I was playing outside. Uh, I was playing outside of all things and enjoying my freedom, doing whatever. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I remember this moment when I came from my backyard into my front yard. And as I was coming into the front yard, it was late afternoon, and walking right toward me was this large man. And I always had this fear of being kidnapped. Kind of a nervous fellow. Always had this fear of being kidnapped. And in and, and that moment, I see this figure coming toward me, and this is it. I'm toast. I'm gone. They'll never hear from me again. It's over. Closer, closer. And then he says, hey, Jeff. And I recognize the voice. I know that voice. That's my dad. And I went from terror to comfort. And you're saying, what? How could you have not known it was your dad? Because as far back as I could remember, my dad had a mustache, a big, bushy mustache. I don't know if you remember this dad. He had this mustache back in the day and must have stopped on his way home from work and had it shaved off along with his haircut. Had more hair back in those days. Sorry dad, no offense. 
I did not, I literally did not recognize him and was filled with terror until he spoke and I heard that one of a kind voice and immediately was comforted by the voice of my father. Jesus is saying, when I speak, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. When I speak the truth, when I speak words that penetrate, cut to the heart, when I speak of everlasting life and forgiveness and mercy that's been offered to you, when I speak words like we're going to continue exploring here about being safe in his hands, we hear. By God's grace, we hear. We hear our Father. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And so he's saying this. It's like a contrast. In one sense, it's, it's, it's telling the religious people what they're missing out on. In another sense, it's inviting them to what they're missing out on, to believe in him themselves, to have the comfort of being one of his sheep and hearing his voice. So the protection of hearing his voice. Secondly, the protection of being known by him. He says next, I know them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. In other places he says they know me. Here he says I know them and this is so valuable. And I think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139 who says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. This is why we say often, God knows you better than you know yourself. He understands you better than you understand yourself. This isn't just some cognitive knowledge of information. He has information. No, he knows everything about you, what makes you tick, what you value, why you operate the way you operate, why you get yourself into the messes you get yourself into, why you clash and collide with other people, why you're filled with fear, why you're filled with frustration. He knows all of that. He understands all of that, and he's your shepherd, and he's caring for you. He says he knows you. He knows you. Protection of being known by him. Estimates are that we think somewhere in the range of thousands to tens of thousands of thoughts going through our minds all day, every day as we operate. And then we have you know, the words that we speak and things we're doing. But as we're awake throughout the day, just countless thoughts going through our minds. And some of those thoughts are aimed at God. Some of those thoughts are the things of God. Some of those thoughts are accurate with regard to God and with regard to other things in our lives. And many of those thoughts are not. And it's a comfort to know that our God is thinking of us regularly, constantly. The psalmist says, I I, I can't even count the thoughts. It's like trying to count grains of sand on the seashore, which if you just put a little bit in your hand, it would blow your mind to try. You couldn't even count them. You'd you'd, you'd just give up on it. And he's saying, like sand on the seashore, the grains of sand, God has all these thoughts toward me and toward you. Elsewhere says, who is man that you are mindful of him? God, why do you care about me? When I'm so often, all we like sheep have gone astray, right? I'm so often going, wandering here, wandering there, preoccupied with whatever I'm preoccupied with, and to know that even in those moments, even when my thoughts are far from God, his thoughts are not far from me and you. You're in the care of a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient shepherd who knows you. As it says elsewhere, he calls you by name. 
So the protection of being known by him. Thirdly, the protection of following him. Uh, th- this, is, this is our part where we hear and we follow. And it's the safest place for us to be. To follow him. Drawn along by his truth. In his tender, loving care. Following. And then fourth, the protection of receiving eternal life. He says... They follow me and I give eternal life to them. He says it a different way. And they will never perish. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Elsewhere he says, he who lives and believes in me will never die. And that's a bit confusing. Because as we admitted earlier, we know we're all going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die. We know that. This body is going to expire. So what does he mean? He means I give you another kind of life, not temporal life, not natural life, but spiritual life, eternal life, the life of being in relationship with your creator, and that can never be taken away from you. Everything else can be and inevitably will be, but that will never be taken away from you. He says, I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. The sheep will never perish. You will never perish. Awesome truth, so encouraging, so reassuring. We have eternal life in 17, 3, chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says, This is eternal life to know God and Jesus, whom God the Father has sent. That is life for us, being in relationship with Him. Eternally secured in that relationship, we'll never perish, we'll never die. Spiritually speaking, even to pass away in this body, to be absent from this body is to be present with him, to be ushered right into his presence. And there is no greater security and no more needful security as we live in these vulnerable, fragile bodies in a fallen world, but to know we have eternal life. And then what he seems to me that he highlights the most and really comes to a crescendo here is this idea of the protection of being held in his hands. And that's why the message is entitled, In His Hands. He says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, so picture what the picture he's painting. Picture this. He's got his hands and the Father's hands. He says, You're safe here. God has you here. In his hands. Now think back to what it is they were craving. They wanted the hammer, right? The hammer to come smash the enemies. To come take care of all the problems around them. To secure them and their people and their stuff. And what he's saying here is, you have this assurance that you are in the hands of God himself. And that you will never be taken out of those hands. They are sovereign hands, omnipotent hands. You are in His grip and you cannot slip out. You are secure as anyone can ever be secure. And it's not the security of the stuff. The stuff will not always belong to us. But it is the security of the soul. We will always belong to Him. Amen. Amen. It's interesting, the storyline of Scripture. 
I mean, if you read the Old Testament just through human lenses and look at all that the Israelites went through and all the suffering, and you can understand why they would want this kind of liberation, this kind of help. You can understand it. You can sympathize with them. And you can understand how the coming of Jesus and the way of Jesus was, was kind of like a divine curveball. Kind of like a divine plot twist. Because while they're thinking of leaders like the hammer, God sends to them a Savior who is gentle and humble and merciful and kind. It says in Isaiah, will not break a bruised reed nor extinguish a smoldering wick, but one who is gentle. And if his hands are omnipotently strong, we better hope that he's gentle if we're in those hands, right? I mean, if the hammer was going to come and demolish sinners, just pulverize sinners, who's left after that? Who's left? Nobody. So he comes first as a shepherd and calls to his sheep and says, come and follow me. You're safe with me. You're not safe anywhere else. You're not even safe within your own mind so frequently. Or safe, really, ultimately in your own human relationships. Even things like family, as much as family is a blessing and all that, but still fragile. Susceptible to human sin and difficulty. And yet God says, you're in my hands and this is the kind of salvation you need the most not some kind of false assurance that nothing's ever going to go wrong for you but the assurance that God will never leave you or forsake you whatever happens I officiated a memorial service just recently there's not one insurance agent who showed up to save the day no flow no Jake from State Farm not one. And you sit there and you talk with people and you have the little service and you reflect on this truth where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's hopeful. That's hopeful. In our flesh, naturally speaking, we kind of want one kind of Savior. God sends us another. Not one who will take all the pain away, the one who speaks truth to us, holds us, Promises to never let go. Not one who will make life always easy or pleasant. It won't always be smooth sailing, but one who offers us himself and his comfort and his truth and his reassurance. It is good news. And this is what he's up to, and I'll begin our transition to our time of communion here in just a minute. But this is what he's up to. Remember we said, Judas the hammer came to clear out the temple. The icons, the relics of the pagan religion, their idols, clears them out, place for the true God. This is the same. And yet it's far better what Christ is up to. Our liberator. Because he comes to clear out the heart. The temple of who we are and the heart of what we value and what we worship. 
And he comes to reveal himself as the only worthy object of worship. The only worthy object of worship. The one who saves not only your body, though he will save our body at some point, but who saves your soul, who saves you from your sin, who saves you from not the warfare around you, though at some point in time, thankfully, he will put an end to that. But for now, here's the promise we have. Not an end to the warfare around us, but an end to the warfare within us. So this is why Paul in Romans 7, the back and forth, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to do, I do, and who will save me from this body of death? And he's describing the inner turmoil of sin, selfishness, and greed. And he knew, as he was aware of his sin, when God broke through the hardened shell of the Pharisee, when God broke through and gave Paul a new heart, he knew of his sin, he knew of his offense to God, he knew that he was so often self-absorbed and self-interested and exploiting people and all of that. He knew that and, and God was showing him all of that war of that part of you, Paul, but then the part of you that follows Jesus and is in love with your Creator and wants to serve and is humble. The, all that, the new heart and the old heart, at war constantly, he knew the only answer for that was Jesus. The rightful object of worship. Which is why after he describes that struggle, he says, who will rescue us? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is the environment in which the heart worships. The environment in which we are reassured by our God that all of our sins are washed away. That we are covered, that we are loved, that we are secure in him. And we now know, yeah, he's the worthy one. He's the object of our worship. Peter said similar in 1 Peter 2 when he talked about the lust that wage war against the soul. And we have a Savior who cares, who meets us there on the inside and assures us of his presence and his shepherding care and he's constantly disciplining us and he's constantly up to good and there's not a moment of our lives where he's not thinking about us, he's not limited, he's not only thinking about one person at a time, he's able to think about all of us all the time he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, he says, no one will pluck them out of his hand either. So that's where you are this morning. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I hope that results in some worship in your heart and in your mind.